Okay, this is John 7, chapter 7. Um, and there's been a lot of things been going on with Jesus in this very short period of time. One thing that is increasing is the hostility toward him. His ministry has pretty much just started. Um, six months into it, we're finding that he's done a lot of things, a lot of miracles, a lot of signs. He's talking about himself. He's getting a lot of people irritated. The cleansing of the temple outraged the Jews. Um, then he starts saying things like he's, him and the Father are equal, him and God are equal, and it's just beginning to cause a great division. People don't know what to do with Jesus. Um, and then he talks crazy things, things that people say, who can understand it? Who's even going to accept this stuff? This is incomprehensible. And then he feeds a five, you know, 15,000 people. So it's just, uh, he's a real <laughs> um, head-scratcher. He's dominating the world scene at this time um, in this area where he's at. He's the talk of the town, like we've said before, but there's a lot of division. It so much reminds me of the times that we live in with this election time. It's almost like it's just polarizing people with what's going on. It's either hate, love, tension, um, people are afraid to even talk about politics, which is fine, but it's, it's a dividing factor. And so Jesus, all the more at his time, was dividing the people. And he was, came at the exact time that God the Father wanted him to come. And it's unfolding under a divine timetable. Time was created by God. It is created by God. Um, when we get to heaven, we're, I believe we're going to be outside time. That dimension is going to be kind of gone. It's going to be fabulous. I mean, when you look at eternity, there's really no time element with eternity. But for this, with the creation of the world, um, with him coming to dwell with men, when he, him reaching out and making himself known to mankind, he has created time and the passing of time. And through this time, while Jesus is on the earth, through this time during our lives, we are all faced with the decision on what to do with Jesus. So this time that God has created for us to live within, within Jesus was living within, gives us definition and it marks progression. So when we look at this chapter, as we've been seeing earlier, that it was all in God's timing it was not his time. It was not time for him to be arrested. It was not time for him to be crucified. It was not time. And that's all within God, sovereign God's hands with that. So we find it on chapter 7, verse 1. After this, again, after probably six months, um, because he was at the Passover, and now time, six months have gone by, and now we're at the Feast of the Booths, Feast of Tabernacle, um, which is probably the most... Uh, celebratory feasts that the Jews had. Um, and we're going to look at now the next time he will be here, six months out, will be the Passover when he rides in to be crucified. So it's getting very close. The cross is hovering over him, but it was all in God's time. So meanwhile, what's he been doing these six months? 
He's been hanging out in Galilee. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So it was the wrong time for him to go, and he was doing things along God's timetable. They were seeking to kill him, watching him, plotting, wanting to get rid of him, and he was irritating them more and more and more. They, weren't, they were blinded by their hatred. Now, Jesus is saying that he's not going to hang out in um, you know, Galilee and not go there because he didn't want to get killed. That wasn't a matter that he was unwilling to die. He laid down his life voluntarily. But the time for the events leading to his death had not quite been put into play yet. So in verse 2 to 5, we see this. So the Jews' feast of the booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even the brothers believed in him. So we see these brothers, they're unbelievers, and, you know, we've talked about before what it would be like to grow up in a family with Jesus was your brother, your big brother. It would probably be not very pleasant, I would think. But they see him now at a time where all these people are following him, and he's popular, and he's doing all these things. I don't know if they were thinking about marketing it. I didn't know they had things on the side. You know, your brother going to be there? Hey, you know, whatever. But they were kind of uh, pushing this whole thing with signs and showmanship and, you know, we want to be made known. And, and this is great. You know, our big brother is so famous now. And so they try to get him to come to the, to the feast and do all that. His brothers were half-brothers. In Matthew 13, 55, there's a list of his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. And at one point in Mark 3, 21, it talks about they were so taken back by the things he was saying and doing that their unbelief pretty much said that he's lost his mind. He's gone crazy. So they were really skeptical. They didn't know what to do with Jesus. They call him a crazy man, and now they're trying to push him to do all this stuff. So they were, like many, many people at the time, unsure of who he was, what to do with him. We know later that James and Jude became believers because James wrote the book of James, and Jude wrote the book of Jude. So they were challenging him now to perform miracles. And his response to them in verse 6, he says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify against it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. What's he talking about there? His time, he is, uh, he is God. He is connected to God. He doesn't do anything unless he does it according to the Father in heaven. The things he says, the things he does, all comes directly from God the Father. They are so tuned in together, they're one. So he is on a, a sovereign timeline. His brothers, like everybody else that is not connected to God, that just live in the secular world, in today's world, like most people who aren't believers, doesn't matter what they do. They're not connected to God. They can go, they can come, they can do what they want to do. It doesn't really matter. That's why it's hard to impose biblical 
concepts onto a non-believer because it doesn't matter to them. They can do. It's not going to influence anybody. As believers, though, when we become believers in Jesus Christ, we need to be aware that we are following along God's will. And things we do, where we go, what we say, these plans, although there's free will in a lot of it, many times that free will is just on our own attitudes, how we're going to respond to this. But God lays out a plan for our lives, work for us to do before we were even born. So that's what he's saying to them. My time's not yet, but you guys, you can do whatever you want to do. So they go on to the, to the feast. In verse 10, after this, his brothers had gone up to the feast, and then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Did he do, did he lie and say he wasn't going? No. What he was saying is that I'm not going right now. My time has not come. I'm not going to go with you guys now. I'm not going to go and make a big show. I'm not going to go the way you want me to go. Um, he goes more in private. He goes after it's already started. Midway through, we find out that he gets there. By that time, most of the pilgrims, most of the travelers that were on the roads were cleared out. People were already where they needed to be. So he could go pretty much in seclusion. He maybe even went right through... Um, Samaria, remember the Jews didn't want to go there that way. They went the, the long way around. He didn't want to draw attention to himself at this time. He wasn't looking for people to, to make a spectacle. But they were looking for him. They were looking for him. Um, verse 11, the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? He had to be there because it was required of him to be there. Everyone was there. This was a major feast that the Jews celebrated. There was much muttering about him among the people. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. So there was all this whispering and stuff. What, what do you think? Do you think Jesus, what do you think about this Jesus guy? Did you hear about what he did with that feeding all those people? Do you think he's going to do, what do you think? Oh, he's, a, oh, he's just a lunatic or he's just crazy. No, I, I really think there's something to it. But they were all afraid to openly come out because they knew the Jewish leaders were out to kill him. And if they sided with Jesus, they may very well have gotten in trouble also or kicked out of the synagogue. I mean, because that, that, Jesus was standing up pretty much against what these, um, the elite Jews at the time, um, what they believed, what they were professing, what they um, symbolized. So there was a fear going on, but a curiosity he was the main attraction, but he was laying low. Now, the Feast of the Booths, like I said, was probably the most celebrated, most joyful feast that they had, called the Feast of Tabernacles, or it's also called the Ingathering. It lasted seven days in the fall, and on the eighth day, it was a special celebration. The people would build little huts out of... Uh, branches and things like that, and it represented how God took care of them in their wanderings in the desert for 40 years. And so they would just build a little hut out. Even if you look probably on the internet now, you can see 
people still do this in their backyard or on their rooftops. There's these little booths that the Jews, uh, the Orthodox Jews, people who still celebrate this, they do. And they hang out there, and it's a, a joyful time because they're celebrating the fact that God took care of them in the desert during that time. After they were left Egypt and were taken out of bondage, Zechariah 14, 16, 19, tells us, those in this room today, that we will celebrate the Feast of Booths in the millennium. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be no plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feasts of booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the feasts of booths. And on that day there shall be inscribed on the horses, the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. It's a celebration day. And during the millennium time, if you are going to look at this scripturally, the way this is my belief that what scripture is saying, we will reign with him during this millennium time. But the nations of the world, the people that are going to be born during that time, they will all be required because God will rule during this time to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Feast of Booths. So in Jesus' day, they celebrated all seven days while they were in the desert. And the eighth day was a special day. That was the day that they celebrated that they had gotten into the promised land, that they were finally arrived. And that was the most special day of all. Um, so Feast of the Tabernacle, the booth, or the in-gatherings when the nations will come in in the Millennium Kingdom. So this was a big... This was bigger than Christmas, really. This was a, um, it wasn't quite commercialized yet. And this was required by everybody to come and do this. And the joy and the, the, the upbeat for, for just the, the, the people. I want you to get a, an understanding of the joy that was happening in Jerusalem at this time when Jesus comes on the scene. It wasn't just, oh, we're out Christmas shopping or whatever. This was a very focused for the Jews, a very focused time of year, looking back on how he took them out of captivity and took care of them in the desert and the celebration when they finally got to the promised land. So, verse 14 tells us that he got there in the middle of the feast. Okay, and he goes into the temple and he begins teaching. So he's in there for a couple days. If it's like the fourth day he's there, he's in there teaching for about three more days. And the Jews, therefore, marveled at him. What he was saying was just unbelievable. He's making a public appearance. And again, the people didn't know what to think. They were afraid. But it was a time to decide what to do with Jesus. Probably nobody at that time didn't have an opinion about it. Oh, I don't know what I don't care. It wasn't like that. Jesus is a person that we have to make a decision about. Jesus is a figure, is a son of God, 
prophet, whatever you want to think he is, you make a decision about him. You don't go neutral on Jesus. And there's a time frame in there too, that every single person that's ever lived has a time frame to make a decision on Jesus Christ, what they're going to do with him. And so we see in 15, the Jews, therefore, they marveled at what he said. They were very perplexed. Okay, they saw the, the miracles. They saw how he cleaned out the temple. They saw the healing that he shouldn't have done and all the miracles and the people healed from their ailments. And, and yet now his words, they couldn't understand where did he get this teaching? Because they had a corner on the universities there. The rabbis, they, you know, you wanted to learn scripture, you would follow a, a, a well-known rabbi. And if you could get with even the best of them, that's really, really good. So you kind of hung out with the rabbi and he would, would educate you and teach you and you had to be accepted into this. Um, it was the way they learned. They didn't have Jesus on any of their registration forms for any of these rabbis nobody nobody poured into jesus he didn't go to anybody's school to learn how to do this no credentials so they didn't know where he got this how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied so jesus answered them my teaching is not mine but his who sent me jesus gets into this next section here verses 15 to 24. He's making claims about himself. Remember I said last week his miracles um, were evidence that he was divine, but the words that he spoke really defined who he was. And he's going to, in this next passage, come up with about five things that he says about himself. And these people need to make a decision what to do with them. Either he's a great moral teacher or he's a lunatic, or he's the son of God. So in verse 15 and 16, he says to them that, my teaching is not my own, but he who sent me. His incredible teaching, what was the source of him? He's saying now here that he was taught by God. He wasn't even self-taught. He was taught by God. No human institution gave him the wisdom that he had. He had incredible knowledge was the first thing, and he was taught by God the Father. The second thing that he makes a claim about himself is in 17. If, anyone will is, is, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. He has the assurance that what he is saying, a humbleness that he is seeking the truth, and if anyone seeks the truth, that he, the truth will be found. So it's letting them know that he gets his knowledge from the Father in a humble way. He seeks it because he, 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 he's after the truth. He loves the truth. He knows the truth. He's connected with the truth. And that applies to anybody. 1 John 2.27 says, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And with truth, when we know the truth, there is no doubt. There's a self-assurance. We know what we know, what we know, what we know, what we know without a shadow of a doubt. 
that Jesus Christ is Almighty God, my Lord and Savior, and when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I have no doubt whatsoever about anything like that. And that's what Jesus was saying. He was self-assured. The third thing is in verse 18. No one speaks on his own authority, seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Again, seeking truth. It's a selflessness. His goal is to do the Father's will and to seek out what the Father wants him to do. Why? To glorify the Father. He's not here to ring his own bells. He's here to glorify the Father. That's a selflessness that happens to it. Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. But in this verse, we have the selflessness of Christ. He's also telling us two things that stand out for a true teacher, a true biblical teacher. First of all, you, when you hear him, does the teaching come from God? In other words, is it according to the revealed word of God? Can you take what a teacher is telling you and look into the word of God and find the evidence for it? I expect you guys to do that at this Bible study. Not because I say so, but it's in here. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, does the work that that teacher does give glory to God? Or are they up there promoting their own book or being their own person or come, you know, hang out with me and, you know, I've got all these likes on Facebook or whatever. So two things. I couldn't have said that 10 years ago probably, right? Two things. Is it accurate alongside of what the Bible says? And is the heart of the teacher to glorify God or is it a self-centeredness? So Jesus has incredible knowledge. He has confidence that, he, that he's getting it from God and what he's, what he's sharing with them is the truth. He is selfless. The fourth thing is he talks about his crucifixion, his mission, his, his, what is going to happen to him. In 19, has not Moses given you the law, yet not, none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? At this point, they didn't realize that their secret had gotten out. They weren't really doing that. Who was Jesus that he could know that they were seeking to kill him? And the whole point of the law of Moses was to do what? Reveal, true, reveal sin. And with sin, there has to be a, a penalty for sin. And, and blood has to be spilled and death. And so here he's making a reference to his mission, his sentence of to be their savior. They refused to allow the law to do its intended work, which was to reveal their sin. They were above the law. They were, you know, perfect, or so they said out loud. And then the fifth thing was all the things that he did, all of his signs that he did. Um, and he's talking to them here about, you know, they have um, all these laws governing around the Sabbath, because the Sabbath, if they kept it perfectly, that would bring on the, the second coming of the, the coming of the Savior, the first coming. So you didn't dare break any of those laws. And yet, they would break that law. If circumcision of a, a young, of a baby fell on that Sabbath, they would go ahead and circumcise. So one law trumped the other law. And so Jesus is calling them out on their own stuff. 
Jesus was urging them to abandon all of their misconceptions about him. Can they even see their own illogic in stuff? He's holding it up, but they're just not getting it. They were so focused on the hatred they had toward him. They were blinded by it. If you live long enough, you run into people who are like that, so filled with hatred that they're blinded to see anything else. These were profound claims that the people could not ignore. They had to do something with them. They had to make a conclusion about what they were hearing and seeing and experiencing about this Jesus. They would either bow to serve him or they would seek to kill him. So, in verse 25, we're getting some of the reactions of the people regarding these claims. They were deeply divided, deeply divided. Um, and we know from John 1:11 that he came to his own, and his own did not receive him, right? He was rejected. The people the crowd were well aware of the leader's murderous intent. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? They knew he was a marked man. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. A marked man, he boldly came out and stood before them. Can it be that the authorities really know that he's the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. That's based on some scripture that says that he will suddenly appear. Again, it's kind of dangerous when you just take one verse and draw a conclusion from one verse. So Jesus proclaimed as he had taught in the temple. He's in the temple. You know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. No one has ever seen God except the one God who is at the side of the Father now. He has made him known. Jesus came to make God known for us, for us. Well, they were very afraid. They weren't sure what to do. They didn't want to talk about him out loud because they knew that they would get in trouble. Um, the Jews feared a riot, and if there was a riot that started, then the Romans would have held them accountable for it, and that wouldn't have been good. They would have gotten in trouble for that, so they had to kind of keep it down. But Jesus' confidence captivated these people. He boldly stood out in front of them. Isaiah 50 7 to 9 says this, But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. We need to stand boldly for Christ, don't we? We need not to be afraid or ashamed of him or fear for our lives because God's got our, he knows our days. He has them numbered. But he was bold and they were shocked 
that when he would say these bold things, the rulers didn't say anything. They really didn't respond at all, except in private. They rejected him because, you know, they thought he came from Nazareth. And, you know, what would come from Nazareth? And they believed that when the Messiah came, he would come in this mighty person coming in and saving them from this oppression that they were under. So they really weren't looking close enough at Scripture to really understand. They weren't open enough to get it. But some were. But Jesus calls them out for being so blind, woefully arrogant, and they were ignorant for the very God that they thought they knew, they knew nothing about. So the division is there. What do they do with Jesus? What are we supposed to do with Jesus? Verse 30, so they were seeking to arrest him. Some of them wanted to kill him. They already knew that. Some of them were going to arrest him. They were going to plot this. But no one laid a hand on him because why? His hour had not yet come. There's a time. There's a time. Yet many of the people believed in him. There you go. Many people did believe in him. They were quiet about it, but they believed in him. And they said, when the Christ appears... Will he do more signs than this man has done? He did such, I mean, and that was why he did the signs, to prove his divinity. And they, were, they saw that and said, there's no, what, how could God top the feeding of that, you know, thousands of people? How can God top having that man paralyzed and an invalid for so long, pick up his mat and go? And plus far, far, far more things. This is, this it speaks of God to, to us, and many believed. And the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officials to arrest him. It was all right, all right, we got to get rid of this Jesus. He's getting pretty popular here. We got to put an end to it, or else they're just, we're just going to lose all of what we have lived for in our comfortable homes and our nice robes and our, our place of authority in the, in, the, in the temple, in the synagogue, and it's going to be ruined for us. We've got to nip this in the bud now because this is taking a wave of its own. And they were very, very divided. They became furious and they planted, plotted to arrest him. But They didn't want to do it publicly because there might be a mob. But even a a mob was under God's sovereign control. People were being forced to decide what to do about Jesus. Boy, did they think he was going to cause division? Luke 12, 51 says this. Do you, Jesus says this, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against the daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. It divided right down the family unit people making a decision about Jesus Christ. People were quietly suggesting that he might be the Messiah. 
And as these mutterings happened, the Pharisees were becoming very, very alarmed. So alarmed that two arch rivals, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, joined forces together against the mute, with the mutual hate they had toward Jesus. We see this happen. Two different enemies, mutual enemy together. Let's come on together with our forces and attack that. I see this in, in uh, family therapy where you have a marriage that's on the rocks. They're not getting along. And then one of the children starts acting out. What does that do? Brings those parents together to work on that kid. Kid knows what he's doing. Sacrificing his, you know, his kind of reputation, his bad behavior to stir the pot to bring mom and dad together. So the plot to arrest Jesus and to kill him is strengthening. It's getting stronger and stronger. And after the Sadducees and the Pharisees joined together and, and plotted, they sent the temple guards, which were the Levites, out to arrest him. But we're going to find out that that failed. So they send out to arrest him. 33, he tells them, timetable, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to be, go to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. So he's letting them know there's a time element here, and they're seeking him now, and pretty soon they're going to seek him, and they're not going to be able to find him. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we won't find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? That would have been a horrible thing for him to do, they thought. What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am going, you cannot come. He continued to boldly proclaim the truth about himself. But he was saying... Pretty much in a few months, in about six more months, Jesus would be crucified and then rise again and ascend into heaven where they could not go. And those who reject Jesus will never come to where he was going. And he was saying that to him. When I, when I, where I'm going, when I get to paradise for eternity, you who don't believe in me, you'll never be there. Instead of heeding his warning... They started to merely ridicule him and scoff at him. The possibility that the Messiah would even minister to the Gentiles, that's foolishness. The time to decide what to do with Jesus is now. They're going to seek him to kill him, or are they going to seek him to serve him? That's the ultimate question that everyone must eventually face Determining our own destiny. What do I do with Jesus? Something that somebody can't do for you. And there's a time element on it too. Verse 37. Time element on the last day. On the eighth day. That was the most important day. That was the funnest day. That was the day where every, oh, we just, you know, opened up all the extra balloons that we had saved for the day and just, you know, it's really, really party time on the last day. On the last day. So this great feast of the tabernacles was a very joyous occasion. 
it anticipated the blessings of the messianic age. They were looking forward to that also. What would happen on the seven days of the uh, feast would be the, um, the first seven days, the priest would draw water from the pool of Shalom, and he would carry it in a golden pitcher, and he would carry it to the water gate and walk around with it, and that's on the inner side of the, in the court temple. And as the priests would march around the altar with this golden pitcher of, of water, the choir would sing, the people would sing, and what they would sing is in Psalm 113 to 118 is what they would sing. If you want to put yourself in a good mood, read that. Psalm 118, you'll recognize this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. It goes on, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. All nations surround me, in the name of the Lord I cut them off. And this is, they're singing this. You can see it when you read it through. It's got a little repetition. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord is for us. I shall not die, but I shall live. The stone, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God. I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love enjoys, endures forever. This was sung every day for seven days. And on the last day, the great day, the last day, the great day, Jesus stands up. And he cries out. That he is who he is. I did that again. I got to change my bookmark. I'm not going to do it today or I'm in the wrong chapter. Here we go. 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. Celebration. If any, and they just, and then what happens with that water pitcher is he, the priest will pour it out. They would pour it out over the altar. So Jesus stands up on this last day. I, um, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That was the picture of the, the Israelites in the desert. It was a river of water that flowed out of that rock. That's what they were remembering and celebrating. Here's this, this Jesus from Nazareth, this lunatic, this prophet, the son of God, who is he? Standing up saying that if you are thirsty, come to me and there'll be rivers of flowing water coming out of you. Now he was saying this about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So on Pentecost, when Jesus had ascended and was glorified, he sent the spirit to indwell every believer. And that is the flow of the Spirit that goes through you. Thirsty. People needed to, to recognize it wasn't a physical thirst, but it was a spiritual thirst that Jesus was satisfying. 
And when people are spiritually thirsty, they recognize their need and repent. And it's more than just, oh, I'm sorry I did that. And he says, come, find relief in him and drink him in. Believe in him by faith. You will become spiritually alive with flowing rivers of living water. To be a Christian is not a self-centered, stagnant pond. We don't receive blessings from God just to hold them in a bucket. I once heard it said that it's, this is like plumbing theology, where a stagnant bucket gets bugs in it and it gets stale. But a Christian is supposed to be someone who takes blessings from God and flows through them and lets them go. And it's a continuous flow. And when water flows, it purifies the water. And so it's not only just we're blessed by God, but then what is in us overflows and continues on and it blesses other people. So when Jesus ascended into heavenly glory, he sent the Spirit with a new fullness this was, whoa, what are they going to do with this? I could imagine the whole crowd was speechless. They had been prepared every seven days up to this point for this man, this son of God, to get up there and now proclaim this. And in verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Some believed he was sent from God. And those believing on that day became the remnant of Israel. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? They were still blinded by that. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? And when David comes from Bethlehem? So they were still all confused. There was great division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to get to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Division. Jesus still greatly divides, doesn't he? He divides. So some believed, some remained skeptical. And then we see what happened with Nicodemus there. He stands up and he steps up for, for Jesus saying, whoa, let's kind of do this the right way. Let's hear the man out. At this point, Nicodemus was probably starting to believe, um, but his mind was still open. He still was kind of, he had to weigh it because he had a lot at stake if he took a stand with Jesus. But his fellow members of the Sanhedrin already had closed their minds to Jesus. So there's a time limit to decide what to do with Jesus. To seek him, either to kill him, or to seek him to serve him. That's the initial, to become a believer. But as Christians, we still, every day, make choices on what to do with him. To seek him, to serve him, to bow our will to him, to bend our will to him, and to serve him? Or when we get that stiff-necked, I'm going to sin, that's killing him because we're not paying any attention to him at that point. He's not a focal point in our mind's eye. He's not our Savior. He's not our Lord. So every day, believers make decisions. Do we serve him? Or are we going to kill him today? God, help us to be found faithful and true and more and more and more and more put you as Lord of our lives with that desire, with that thirst that only you can satisfy to be a light for you. It's a time of urgency for this, God, and we trust your spirit will fill us with the confidence to not be fearful, but to speak boldly 
about the truth of who you are, the Son of God. In Jesus' name, amen.